Welcome to the Glittering Bell Jar, a Harry Potter podcast. I'm Valerie. And I'm Bree. We're two writers and Harry Potter fans. In this podcast, we explore the Harry Potter series by reading it backwards. As you might recall, Harry and his friends discover the power of the Glittering Bell Jar in the Department of Mysteries as it causes objects to move backward and forward through time. We're doing the same thing each week, working backwards through a few chapters, starting with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Ready to explore Harry Potter in a new way? Then join us in the Glittering Bell Jar. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Glittering Bell Jar. This is a Harry Potter podcast where we are reading the Harry Potter series backward. We are in the first few chapters. We're not quite at the beginning, but we're getting there, of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And last season, we covered Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, moving backward chapter by chapter. In this season, we are doing one chapter per episode, which is a little bit different than we did last season. And I am your host, Valerie, joined, as always, by my co-host, Bree. So how's it going today, Bree? Hmm, it is going well. Uh, life is good. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm good. I've got a little project coming up later tonight. You can maybe see if you're watching us on YouTube that I'm wearing a very spacey shirt. I've been participating in a web series that is all about astronomy, so I'm channeling my inner Ravenclaw and wearing something a little spacey for tonight's show. It's a it's a very fun other project. I am always working on something. This podcast, the Harry Potter website, the space stuff. Uh, there's always something. So yeah, I'm good. I'm gonna. I got a busy evening, but that is not a bad thing. Yeah, uh, if you don't know, Valerie has 10,000 things going all the time. And honestly, she does really well at all of them. So it's quite impressive. Mm, I would say I have 10,000 things going all the time and 9,000 of them are either being done poorly or being neglected, which is very (laughs) disappointing. I'm like Hermione in that way where like, I don't want to do things poorly. I'd rather not do them. And so I've been struggling lately. Maybe some of the listeners can feel this where when I know I'm not doing very well at something, it really bothers me. And part of that is because as we discussed a few episodes ago, I'm traveling a lot, simultaneously to this podcast being recorded and being released. So if you're listening in the future, time travel is weird. Don't worry about it. But I've been a- I've been forced to neglect some parts of things that I've been working on, and I'm not happy with myself. But I also literally just need sleep and am a human. So <laughs> I can't do it all. Yeah. Sleep is important. I feel like if you could give something away or like have a like a genie or something, that would be one thing you wanted was like a time turner or something like that. You would definitely be Hermione in that way. You know, I don't know that I would have a time turner because I could not for the life of me figure it out why Hermione didn't use the time turner to take more naps because (laughs) you literally can't add more hours to the day and not sleep more other than being 13 years old, I guess. Maybe there's magic there. But I, if I had a wish from a genie, it wouldn't be a time turner. It would be like, I only need three hours of sleep a night. Because if I just had five more hours in my day, that's like 20% more of my day that I would be awake. And I now need like seven to eight hours. It's quite a a waste of time from a uh, efficiency perspective. (laughs) Maybe we'll figure out how to become vampires and then we won't need time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just moved to Alaska. Isn't that where the vampires are? Yeah. That's the rumor. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I've heard. (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway, let's get back onto the Harry Potter train, not get on a Twilight train. That is not what we are doing in this episode. Uh, Though I would like to point out, if you are vaguely interested, Brie and I would both potentially do a backward Twilight podcast. I think oh, it's yeah. weird and wacky and whatever. So if you're like, mm, that sounds interesting. I don't even know what we would call it. Anyway, if that sounds interesting, <laughs> let us know on social media at Bell Jar Pod. Uh, this, this episode and this show is all about Harry Potter. So we're going to get into that now. Uh, we are covering chapter 10 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. This is episode 21. So we are about a 
two-thirds of the way through the book. And this is a really good chapter. I'm very much looking forward to it. As usual, Bree's going to give us a synopsis. We will go through the last sentence, and then we will discuss. So I'll let you take it away, Bree. Chapter 10, The House of Gaunt. Harry is beginning his lessons with Dumbledore, where he explains that he wants to share with Harry more about Voldemort through memories. They dive into a memory from Bob Ogden, an employee of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. He walks down a long path and ends up at an old house covered in vines and in disarray. After being basically attacked by a young boy who breaks his nose, the boy's father, Mr. Gaunt, reluctantly lets Bob come inside after Bob insisted that a spell was detected to have been used by an underage wizard, which turned out to be Morphin, the young boy, who apparently gave a muggle hives all over his body. Inside the tattered house is a young girl, Morphin's sister, who is nervously trying to cook in the kitchen. As the story unfolds, we discover that Morphin did in fact confound a muggle, one who his sister has her eye on. Her father, enraged with the idea of his pure-blood daughter with a muggle, attacks her. Ogden prevents him from killing his own daughter, but leaves in a rush so he can return with the ministry to bring both Morphin and his father in. Now outside of the memory, Harry puts together the last few pieces of the puzzle. Gaunt's daughter is Tom Riddle's mother, who goes on to marry that muggle after likely using a love potion on him. After getting married and impregnating her, the muggle, no longer under the influence of the love potion, leaves her and her unborn son. Good, good summary. This is a huge chapter, by the way. <laughs> there is so much that happens. Yeah. So many new characters <laughs> are introduced. So I'm going to give a little bit more of the last sentence this time. That would be around the time that you injured your hand then, sir, said Harry. Around that time, yes, Harry, said Dumbledore. Harry hesitated. Dumbledore was smiling. Sir, how exactly? Too late, Harry. You shall hear the story another time. Good night. Good night, sir. Mm. Which, honestly, I'm so over it. I'm so over Dumbledore not telling <laughs> Harry the story of the hand. Because he never tells him. And it's really frustrating mm -hmm. to me that he denies Harry that piece of information. Which is, I don't know, why does he not tell him? Why does he not give Harry the story of his own vulnerability in putting on the ring and what it does? Maybe he knew Snape was going to? That, there's another point in this book. It's a cop-out for sure, but... Well, it leaves a lot to chance. That's what I was going to say. And I think that that's acknowledged at some other point where, where Dumbledore leaves a lot to chance sometimes. And I don't know that I would do that if I were him. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would trust on the good character of these various people to do exactly what you want them to. Also, it seems to me that, oh, by the way, Harry, I put on that ring and it was cursed and it cursed me. And Snape is the one who saved me because he protected it in my hand. Seems like would be a good piece of information to tell Harry so that he's not as angry with Snape all the time. Yeah, no, I agree. I actually was really annoyed with Dumbledore this chapter too, because he loves to you play on words. Harry literally is like, I, I thought you had already told me everything about mm -hmm. Voldemort and the prophecy and, you know, last year. He's like, well, I, I did, technically. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's some things that aren't exactly facts. And I, you know, I haven't told you that yet. Like, dang, Dumbledore. <laughs> Yeah. Now we're going into my hypotheses. Yeah, this is a, I agree. This is a very much a manipulation of the truth. And I can see why in Deathly Hollows, Harry is so frustrated when no one will tell him. He, yeah. he says, I don't want a version of the truth. I want the truth. I want to know because people, especially Dumbledore, has been denying me the truth of his history that I need to know as much as I need to know Voldemort's history if I'm going to defeat Voldemort. Yeah. Yeah, and Dumbledore just keeps not trusting him. And it, it is very obvious. And it's only going to get worse as we keep going backward. Right. I mean, is it a, is it a matter of not trusting him? Or is it a matter of man, literally just manipulating him? I'm going to withhold this information so that you keep behaving the way I want you to. 
Uh, maybe. I feel like it's a little bit of both. I think that he is trying to do what's best. And I think maybe he also thinks it will keep him from doing what he wants or will keep him doing what he wants him to do. But also, he's also afraid of his link between him and Voldemort. Mm, that's true. That is a good point. I always forget that Dumbledore is very concerned about that, even though Harry learns to master that. Mm-hmm. Which is why he doesn't want to tell him necessarily that he knows all this stuff. And so he just slowly starts telling him when it's just they have no other choice. But still, I still hate it. It still makes me mad because he's so manipulative. And it's... Um... Yeah, I, I'm frustrated on Harry's part mm-hmm. <laughs> on, Harry, on Harry's behalf. Yeah, no, 100%. Same. So something kind of funny I just want to point out really quick was uh, we talked last chapter about Hermione and being mad about the prince. And it's kind of funny because two things I noticed about Hermione. The first thing is they notice she starts, Harry starts pointing out that he's doing really well with this book and it's kind of newer and Hermione's getting frustrated with it because she insists, no, I don't, I don't want your book. The the book says to do this and the books are right. Hermione is realizing that the rules are failing her and her entire life, she has read, read, research, knowledge is power. These books are her friend and they are failing her. And so she is so frustrated that everything she believes in, which is these books, this knowledge is, it's not making her number one anymore. And she's like trying, she's like, no, probably, I must've done the potion wrong. You know, like she probably kept trying and kept trying and realizing that, that yeah. That sometimes the rules don't get you where you want to be. It's kind of funny that she's in this state of mind in this particular book because she's had experiences in the past where the books have failed her and she's compensated. Mm. Like in the very first book, she tries to read to learn how to to fly a broomstick and discovers that that's not how it works. You just have to fly a broomstick and have to learn it. Harry's very good at flying a broomstick and has never read anything about it. And then... There's during their third year when Harry is so good at defense against the dark arts and scores like top marks in the class with Lupin and Hermione doesn't do as well. And it's like, Harry's not the best student because he reads the most books. You'd think she would sort of be looking at that data and be like, okay, well, not always does being like following exactly what the book says yield the best outcome. But it's sort of funny because she sort of regresses that way of like leaning back on a character trait of like the book is going to always be right and it's proving wrong again. Yeah, I imagine those other things, though, she just knows that Harry is innately smart, innately talented, and she probably figures, okay, well, those are just things that he is just really strong suited at. Because he didn't learn those things from a book, you know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. for someone else's knowledge. But, I mean, I hear you, and you're right. But maybe she's just, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's weird, then, that she doesn't acknowledge that the prince might also have that innate talent at potion making, and has just happened to document it in this book. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Um, Most of my notes from this chapter are from within the memory and after it, because I think that's the core of the chapter. So the first one that I had was actually about how, how does Dumbledore understand the parcel tongue in this memory? Because of that- Or does he? That's what I'm wondering. Does he not fully understand the memory? He, He must understand it because he knows it's significant enough to show Harry. And there's a whole series of dialogue between Morphin and Marvolo and Merope, where they're all speaking in parcel tongue. And I can't imagine Dumbledore hasn't had it translated, but I'm like, who's translating it? It seems like it's something he would, he would knows, but we don't know how he knows it. Um, he has master. He has mastered parcel tongue. Really? So he learned he not, it. So, yes. Yeah. Hmm. We do. And it said we're not. Sure, it says we are not sure why Albus learned the language, but perhaps headmaster wanted a better understanding of Voldemort. So he can't speak it aloud, but he can. Did you click all the way in? Because like last time, I didn't click all the way in. It was not the truth. <laughs> we had a whole extra bonus about that. Well, this is yeah. It's a wizardingworld.com. So yeah, um, Albus Dumbledore had mastered parcel tongue, although he could not speak it. Hmm. Probably just so that he could understand Voldemort better. Hmm. Okay, I just wanted to check that because I was like, 
he knows that Harry understands, but how does he understand? Like, what are the mechanics of him understanding? But it's that he is just a constant student. Mm -hmm. Well, now I'm back to liking him again. (laughs) The other thing that I caught, um, there's a couple different things, and most of them have to do with Marvolo. There's this scene when Bob Ogden is introducing himself to the family and trying to, like, explain in a very rational way why he's there. And Marvolo's being very frustrating, like, oh, I don't open my, I don't open letters. And it's like, well, of course, then you don't know I'm coming if you don't open the warning letter that I'm coming. But there's a scene where the line reads, are you pureblood, Marvolo asked, suddenly aggressive. And I got the weirdest sense when reading that chapter of certain members in our society with strong prejudices and how they do have that sort of switch. If you are, if they suspect you are not part of the in-group that they value and they get the, the word that got me was suddenly aggressive. Like he suspects that Bob Ogden is not pure blood and he's all of a sudden, and it's like that level of stress and temperament about people and whether they fit your mold of what is good and what is not. It's going to be very bad for your mental health to live that way. And I'm not, I'm speaking now about within the book. Like I know I was kind of drawing an analogy outside and I will say one thing I've learned is never talk about politics in a podcast because there'll always be someone who leaves a review about it. Go ahead and leave us a review, please. I'd love to see a new review. Uh, But just that carrying prejudice and anger like that, it, it can't be good for people, right? Whatever that might be. And so this, this particular line just jumped out at me of being like, I think about people in communities where they don't have a lot of diversity and how they are sort of like hair triggers when they encounter somebody who doesn't fit. And that is really scary. And I, I always wondered how Bob Ogden ended up being in the Department of Magical Law Enforcement because he doesn't really strike you as like a Kingsley Shacklebolty type of guy, right? But he stands up here. He's able to def- like hold his ground against a very volatile individual and attempt to communicate the important message and then returns and accomplishes his goal of law enforcement. It's just a you know, very interesting scene with this new character, plus all of the background that, that, you know, we've talked in the past about how all that historic genetic social things will affect Voldemort as well as a, as a baby, as a, you know, in the womb. And his mother being in this house too must have an impact on him and his own prejudices that he brings forward. Well, and they all but say they are inbred. I mean, both of the kids, their eyes, like, no offense to people who have this, it's a, maybe a bad thing, but it says their eyes are literally going, like, two separate ways. They talk about all the different things that are from their, like, just literally only being, like, marrying their cousins. Yeah. I mean, Dumbledore says they had a bad habit of marrying their cousins. Like, he definitely <laughs> said, and I would assume, like, it, uh, you know, if you go, and I'm sure there are resources online that go through the, the Gaunt family tree in a little bit, and it's it's like... Well, you know, that happened in Europe, too. It was well documented that you could not marry too close to your own family tree or you would have problems within a few generations. I do think it's interesting, though, that there is such a pride in the family tree when it's causing such problems for Marvolo. He's lost. There's no family fortune. His children are not functional, really, independently functional. And yet he has such pride in the ring and being of the Peveril coat of arms, which if I, I don't know, if I were Bob Ogden and someone said the name of a long dead pureblood family, I would find that vaguely interesting. Like, I don't, maybe it's just I have a natural curiosity, but that's a, that's a family line that's been dead. So if someone's claiming they have a heritage to it, that's kind of important. That seems to me like I'd want to know more about it. I mean, maybe, but I'd also just think they were probably crazy. I mean, he's obviously seems like a guy who's like drunk and his poor kids are like, one's like a tormentor. The other one's like sitting in the kitchen shaking in her boots. You know, he's probably like, yeah, they're probably just freaking off their rocker. Like, 
he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're related to the Peverils and Slytherin. Right. Uh-huh. Okay, buddy. Like, you just need to stop <laughs> marrying your cousins. I don't care who you're related to. <laughs> That's true. That is true. He might just be like, I can't. I don't care. Like, you, your son broke the law. I'm here to do my job. I don't want any of your family tree business. <laughs> please leave me out of this. <laughs> I just want to get home before dinner. Can we just make this easy, please? <laughs> your house is gross. I don't want to be here. Please let me go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> To kind of piggyback off of that, I just, I think that this is a good example of the consequences of bigotry and hate literally creating Voldemort. Literally that situation created the, you know, wizarding world's worst wizard was a consequence of bigotry and hate. And he wasn't even raised in a household that taught him that. That's the wild part. It's not like he was brought up by his seriously racist grandfather. He just comes into a world and, and in some ways comes genetically by a very gnarled family family tree on one side and then a noble tree on the other. So what's interesting is he actually has two very pure lines, right? Because the riddles are going to be a a noble family as well. And it all of that comes together to create this intensely prejudiced person who didn't even who wasn't taught it. So there is have to be some naturey bit to it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But also the fact that he was, you know, raised in an orphanage and then found out he wasn't loved, so it just probably fed his evil. Yeah. I mean, it's actually interesting you say that. The last note that I have, and then we can jump back over to whatever you have, is this the discussion of Tom Riddle leaving Merope and going back home and never finding out what his son has been up to. And I just think of, again, I'm going off the page and constructing a scene in my memory, the moment when Tom Riddle enters the room where it's Tom Riddle Sr. and his parents, like grown Tom Riddle Sr., living with his parents still. Okay, buddy. And this ghost from the past who looks just like Tom Riddle walks in and Tom has probably not acknowledged that he ever had a child. You know, like what a what a scene to have been in the room for, which is never discussed here, which is he he didn't need to discover what became of his son. His son came for him and killed him. That was the consequence of him not dealing with his own issues. And, you know, yes, he was under a love potion. That's what Merope did manipulate him into that relationship. But he still had a son. He still had an obligation. And I'm not sure Tom Riddle might have turned out any nicer, but he probably would have been if he'd been raised by some snobby noble people Mm -hmm. in the countryside. I don't know. Couldn't have been worse. It can't be worse. (laughs) True. True. Yeah, it is one of those moments when, like, it's the bad guy and you're like, yeah, that's right. Go kill your dad. Yeah. do that. (laughs) You're, like, not even mad. Yeah. I mean, Tom Riddle. And and just, like, I think about Tom Riddle's own, like, senior's parents, like, sitting in there in their their dinner. Basically, I think the scene is, like, they died at the dinner table. And this young man walks in who looks like their son and then just kills them. And it's like, what a terrible... They said they thought they died of fright. Yeah, I would die of fright, but not because I was, (laughs) like, because... A huge thing had happened and I wasn't told about it. And now there's this young man with magic who comes in and kills me. Like, oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I just thought, like, I I thought, you know, yeah, Tom Riddle Sr. sort of reaped what he sowed. He abandoned his son and his son didn't let him off the hook. And unfortunately, that was a very violent response because that's what he learned from being abandoned. Karma, man. Yeah, Voldemort style karma. Ooh. Yeah. Wait, intense (laughs) karma. Uh, Evil karma. But. Yeah, I guess that's not really karma. I guess what goes around comes around. It's not really karma. That's not really how it works. But I don't want I don't want karma people coming for me. I mean, kind of, but not exactly. Yeah. Okay. We're not officially experts on karma, so we're using it <laughs> as a colloquial term, not as like a truly spiritual <laughs> belief term. Just clarifying. If you're listening, I apologize if we offended you by using that incorrectly. Also, it's just a Harry Potter podcast. Roll with it. Roll with it. Just be like they don't know what they're talking about. Skip forward 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I have one fun thing to say, and I just so the we talked about the portraits. I think two episodes ago, and how uh, or a couple episodes ago, probably more than that. Uh, how the portraits of past people, whether they're headmasters or headmistresses, they fall asleep whenever they doze off whenever a student comes in. They pretend to sleep. They, they pretend. pretend. So they did that in this chapter. It actually mentioned them dozing off when Harry walked into Professor Dumbledore's office. And I was like, they're not actually sleeping. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I always thought that was funny how they were always conveniently sleeping. And now that you've brought up portraits, I'm curious what, what you think and what our listeners think about, do you think Voldemort ever sat for a portrait? Oh, I would if I were him. I'm like, I'm the biggest, baddest guy around. Or Lucius Malfoy. Like, I don't know. Is it only headmasters that sit for portraits? So I don't think that Voldemort would because I think that he would think that he's never going to die. Mm. And that's why you make a portrait is so that you're there after you're gone. But I guarantee Lucius Malfoy did. Also, for the record, if you're trying to achieve mortality, immortality and you can paint a portrait and have semi-immortality, that <laughs> seems like the first thing you should do before you start going on a murder spree. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> now that you said I'm like, this, that was the easy way to do it. Yeah. Well, And put his soul in it. How cool would that have been? Like a portrait that was also a horcrux. Yeah. Yeah, nobody would have destroyed it. Yeah, horcrux on horcrux. Anyway, we just, we just solved Voldemort's great fatal flaw. <laughs> Who needs love? He just needed a portrait. Yeah, I just needed a magical artist. That's the power of art. Art, I tell you. That's right. Uh, all right, all right. Is that it? So that's all you had in this chapter? That's all I had. Cool, cool. Okay, well, we will wrap it up for here. Uh, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate you taking a little time out of your day, whether that's walking the dog, rocking the baby, making dinner, working. I'm like a weird podcast work person where I can work with podcasts on. Whatever you're doing, we appreciate you taking some of that time and brain power to spend with us. If you've enjoyed yourself, please make sure you're subscribed to The Glittering Bell Jar. Head to your podcast player. Make sure you're following. Make sure you're subscribing. And then scroll down a bit to wherever the option is to leave a rating. Leave us some stars. And you are welcome to remove a star because, oh my God, they brought up politics. And uh, leave us a review if you have more you want to say about how we should never talk about politics or even veiled discussions of politics. Heaven forbid we talk about politics when the books talk about <laughs> politics in the wizarding world. But let's not get into that. Uh, you can also find us on social media if you're looking for something lighter, something more playful. We're usually having just a bunch of fun over there. So mm-hmm. head over to TikTok, Twitter, or Instagram at BellJarPod. Mm-hmm. Yep. Give us a share. Follow us, please. Send us a DM. We love to hear about all about it. Uh, we've got some fun reels over there, so go check them out. You can also email us, podcast at followthebutterflies.com. Followthebutterflies.com is an incredible website that Valerie has created. It's all about Harry Potter. Go check it out right now. Just put it in. Trust me. You'll love it. You'll be so excited. Uh, but you can email us if you would like to, uh, and we would love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. That's one of my 9,000 things that's not getting enough love and attention, but I would like <laughs> to think it's because we're doing the podcast and I just have to focus my energy on one Harry Potter project at a time. Yes. One last thing before we go. Uh, if you've done all those things, if you've subscribed, rating, reviewed, followed, commented, DM'd, emailed, all of that, which I should probably check the email inbox to make sure that you've done all that. Uh, one last thing you can do is you can share this with a friend. And we didn't talk about it, but I want you to find someone you know who has a deck of tarot cards like Trelawney Ooh. and share it with them. Because, uh, yeah, they're, the tarot, Trelawney's actually weirdly good at reading tarot cards. She's very accurate. Yeah. Uh, su- uh, surprisingly good at another form of divination. So <laughs> maybe your friend who has tarot cards will like listening to us. And we would really appreciate it if you shared with them. With that, we will sign off. We will be back soon with another episode, unless you're listening in the future, in which case you can just roll right on through. And we will see you next time. See ya.
Glittering Bell Jar is a Harry Potter podcast produced by the Calibro Group in partnership with Wild Goose Creatives. It is an unofficial fan project that is not authorized, approved, licensed, or endorsed by J.K. Rowling, her publishers, or Warner Brothers Entertainment Incorporated. Our theme music is Carnival of the Animals R125, Aquarium by Moments, licensed via Soundstripe. You can discover even more magic on followthebutterflies.com.